Hey there, Converse Nation. I'm Shabonda Allen, licensed professional counselor and marriage and family therapist, and I'm here with our self-care drop. We are in the middle of a global pandemic with loss all around us. So I thought it would be a good time to talk about grief, what it looks like in our lives, and then I'll give you five tips on coping better with loss. So grief can be defined as a deep sorrow, just our response to losing someone or something. Grief is a natural part of life. We live lives with meaningful connections to people and things. So when we lose those things, we're gonna grieve. We can grieve if we lose someone, something like a pet. We can grieve the loss of a job or relationship. We can even grieve the loss of our sense of safety. Or we can grieve in a situation where you've received a life-changing diagnosis from the doctor. So what does grief look like? There is no blueprint. There is no here is how to grieve. Everyone grieves differently. Even in a family where we're, we're all grieving the loss of the same parent, those siblings can have different grief responses. So grief can be tearfulness or crying. It can be increased anxiety, increased thoughts of death or our own mortality. We can be sad, we can be angry. I'm so mad that this happened or this is happening. Sometimes our anger is not even that overt. Sometimes we're just more easily annoyed or more irritable. Sometimes we experience denial. This isn't happening. I'm not dealing with this type of thoughts. And then sometimes we get to a place where we accept what's happened. And that doesn't mean we're happy it happened. It just means, okay, this happened. Here's how I'm going to deal with it. Normal grief symptoms gradually start to fade over time. After about a year, things are usually feeling less intense and the symptoms are getting better. If after about a year, the symptoms are getting worse, it may be time to enlist some help. So five tips on coping better with loss. Tip number one would be to acknowledge the loss. Acknowledge your reaction to the loss. It's okay to feel. Acknowledge that it's okay to not be okay some days. Allow yourself to process through what you're feeling and thinking. Talk to someone about what you're feeling and, feeling and thinking. Be willing to journal or write if that's a good way to get out your feelings about the loss or what you think about the loss, but acknowledging that loss is really important. The second tip would be to stay present. Too many thoughts about the past or the future can get really overwhelming when you're grieving. So some grounding techniques, mindfulness training, guided meditation are all really good tools to help you practice staying in the moment. If you have fears about these techniques being related to other religions, rest assured, these techniques are not a spiritual practice unless you make them that way. And in that case, you can meditate on scripture. Or when you're in that mindfulness moment, staying grounded and focused in the present, you can focus on your gratitude and what you're grateful for from God. So that brings me to tip number three, which is practicing gratitude. It may seem weird to throw this in here, but 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18 tells us to give thanks in everything. And it can be really easy to focus on just the loss when we're grieving. And so having gratitude helps us to focus and balance that out with focusing on what we are grateful for still. Step four would be to have fun. I know that probably sounds really strange, but science shows us that our grief response has the same effect on our brain and our body as stress. And so we wanna balance that out with some intentional fun, laughter, playing games, um, watching something that makes you laugh out loud. You want to bring some balance to that stress that's happening in your body. 
And then the last thing, conversion is praying, staying in the word. It's so important to draw closer to God during a time of grief and not further away. And the easiest way to stay in the word, I think, are devotionals. If you pick up the Bible and you're like, I don't know where to begin, the Bible app has uh, devotionals that you can search by topic. And so you can look up a, a Bible plan on grief and let those words of encouragement um, just soothe you. And you can find scripture that you can focus and meditate on that will be helpful for you as well while you're grieving. Thank you so much for your time, Converge Nation. I want to leave you with three other scriptures that I think are helpful that speak to some of the things that I've mentioned and that also speak to us about grief. So one set of scriptures is Romans 5, 1 through 5. And then we have James 1, 2 through 4, and then Psalm 34, 18. Thanks again, Converge Nation. I hope that was helpful. If you have any questions or want to talk more about grief, please reach out to me at smallvictoriescounseling.com. I look forward to talking with you, answering any questions you might have, and pointing you in the right direction. All right. Thanks so much for your time, and I'll talk to you next time.
sound good out there. Take a sec, Karina. I've got the best life now. Living my best life now. I've got the best life now. Oh, Jesus, I'm alive. Sing it again. I've got the best life now. Living my, living my best life now. I got.
Hey there, Converge Nation. Welcome to week two of This Is Us, where we're learning God's blueprint for Christ-centered families. Now, you've probably deduced by now that we've borrowed and we've taken inspiration from the hit TV show, This Is Us. You know, uh, Pastor Wendy and I, when that show first debuted, were massive fans. In fact, we didn't only watch for the first season and a half, we analyzed every single episode. And it seemed like every week we were navigating the full spectrum of human emotion, right? It made us laugh. It made us cry. It made us cheer. It made us say, oh, wow. And what we realized after a season and a half, we didn't make it all the way through season two because we realized that we were deeply emotionally invested in the stories, in the characters, and we were like, wow, we need, to, we need to pump the brakes on this because the storytelling was so compelling. And here's why. The stories were real. Uh, the characters were experiencing real human emotions. The storytelling was raw and it was relevant. And, and, and when we started to pray about this series and we started to think about uh, uh, how we could address what the Bible had to say, about the most important interpersonal relationships that you and I will ever have within the context of the family, we said, listen, This Is Us would be a good place to start. Now, This Is Us is really a declaration of, uh, of our hope and our intent for what we hope and desire our family to look like. And by the end of this series, we'll help you walk through what your unique vision ought to be for your family. Let me rephrase that. Not what it ought to be because of what Pastor Wendy and I think, but we'll help you ask those important questions to help you arrive at what you believe your family should look like based on the blueprint provided in Scripture. Uh, now, we said last week that God has already provided a blueprint for family in Colossians chapter 3 and then for marriage in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 as well. Uh, so say this with me uh, as we dive into today's message. We want to make sure we understand the parameters that we're working with and working within. So here it goes. Understand the plan. Yeah, say that with me right there, right there in the comfort of your home. Say this with me. Understand the plan. Yeah, that God has a plan for marriage and family. Here's God's plan for marriage and family. It's more than just two people falling in love and cutting covenant and making a commitment to, 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 to be faithful to one another for the rest of their lives. That is really an important part of it. But God's design for marriage is that the marriage and family would be a microcosm and would be an accurate reflection and representation of God's relationship to the church. That's why in Ephesians 5, he uses this imagery, right? He uses these word pictures likening the relationship between a husband and wife to Christ and the church. So God's original plan, which is his, his eternal plan for marriage and family, is that our marriages and our families would reflect his relationship with the church. It would be a picture of the kingdom of God. It, it goes way beyond just boy meets girl. Boy meets girl and they have kids. We are called and created to be a reflection, a representation of God's original and eternal plan 
for his relationship with the church. That's huge. In fact, in Ephesians 5, he calls it a great mystery. Uh, and so that's what we have, been, we have been invited into. That is the plan of God, and we're called to understand the plan, that it transcends just human romantic love. We are a part of God's big grand design for what the church and his relationship to the church should look like. So we understand the plan. Number two, say it with me, follow the pattern. Come on, somebody, follow the pattern. And the pattern is given explicitly in the text, and it is fourfold. There are four dynamic relationships that exist within the context of the family. We'll get to that shortly. But this is where we all want to arrive, right? We want to receive the promise. We believe, we believe, Pastor Wendy and I and here Converge, we believe that you and I, all right, have a 100% chance of success at marriage and family if we'll do it God's way. Last week we said it's impossible to get God's results doing things our way. So our part is to align our lives, align our choices and our decision making with what God has already blessed, what God has already ordained, what God has already sanctioned. So we understand the plan we follow the pattern so that we can receive the promise. Amen? On that note, let's pray and we'll dive into today's message together. Father, we love you, we honor you, and we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather around your word. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive illumination. We thank you, God, for your promise that the entrance of your word gives light. So, Lord, illuminate our understanding as it, as it relates to relationships, uh, how we ought to navigate these interpersonal relationships within the context of the Christian family and the Christian home. Lord, I pray now for every man, for every husband, for every father. Lord, I pray for every woman, every wife, every daughter. And Father, I pray this morning for our children. Uh, I pray for families and that God, you would just move in a very specific and unique way and meet each one right where we are. And that God, that you would do the work of healing, you would do the work of restoration, and that you would do the work of reconciliation today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen and amen. Let's dive into our anchor text because that's going to be our jump off point. Listen, We've been doing the Cupid shuffle, the electric slide. We've been doing, listen, we've been doing the moonwalk through the epistle of Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 3. And Paul is speaking to the church at Colossae. And I want you to note this. This is critically important because the church at Colossae is located in what we would call modern day Turkey. God's instruction through the apostle Paul is coming into a cultural context where these ideas are absolutely revolutionary. They stand in total contradistinction to what they had learned and what they called acceptable. You said, Pastor Ian, what are you talking about? Number one, he talks about these four very distinct and dynamic relationships within the Christian home. And he says four things need to happen. Number one, wives submit. We talked about this extensively last week, that the word submission really means honor and respect. 
and we also drove home the point that a wife under the cover of a loving husband is in the safest and most secure place possible. So wives submit. It's something that we need to enjoy, not endure. Amen. It's something that we need to receive by faith and not fear. Wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Number two, and this is where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time this morning. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and do not be bitter toward them. In fact, I think I, I did a little bit of a remix. I think I did Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 in that. But Colossians 3 says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Let me pump the brakes there. Because, because, again, Paul is speaking to a Middle Eastern mindset, a Middle Eastern paradigm, where men could do away with their wives, where men were issued certificates of divorce for any reason, where a wife had absolutely no say. If the husband got fed up one day, if he allowed unforgiveness and bitterness to take root in his heart, he could... He could dispose of his wife at will. And here is Paul introducing this revolutionary concept that is twofold. It is two-sided. He's asking wives to trust God enough to honor and respect husbands that didn't love them. To surrender and submit their lives to men that were not bound by law or culture to honor them. What Paul is saying to the Church of Colossae, he was speaking to Middle Easterners. And again, I'm going to make a very generalized statement here. But what he's saying is to a culture where the men were more chauvinistic than chivalrous. And, and culture had given them permission to do just that. Remember what Jesus said, teaching about marriage. He said it was never God's will uh, that you would you would you would. Treat the wives, your wives the way you do. But he said Moses was forced to issue, to issue these certificates of divorce. You know why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. Meaning Jesus was saying the problems we're seeing in marriage and family is a direct result of the hardness of the husband's heart toward the woman he should Love sacrificially, love selflessly, and love unconditionally. What is Paul saying? I want you to grasp this because there is nothing about their frame of reference where this makes sense. You mean to tell me now I can't just get rid of my wife? You mean to tell me if I get mad at my wife, I can't just mistreat her? You're telling me that my response to my wife now can no longer be motivated by selfishness. It can no longer be motivated by unforgiveness and bitterness toward her. Yeah, it, this is a radical concept. And in most of the world today, most men have been given the license and the permission to live under the same roof with a woman they once loved, but have now grown bitter toward them. And Paul as the apostle and church planter and spiritual father to Epaphras, the church at Colossae, 
is introducing this new concept. Wives, trust God enough that God will do such a revolutionary work in your husband's heart that that heart of stone will become a heart of clay. And you will no longer be afraid, but you will find safety and security as he learns to love you as Christ loved the church. Today, fellas, I'm coming for all of us because we're going we're gonna to challenge and we're going we're gonna to confront the bitterness that some of us have allowed to linger in our hearts toward our wives. And remember, Jesus said, Jesus said, the only reason, the only reason this happened is because of the hardness of your heart. Mm. All right. Uh, number three, third dynamic relationship is the relationship of the children to their parents. It says, children, obey your parents. For this is pleasing to the Lord. God is pleased when children obey and respect their parents. And then fourth and finally, we'll continue along these lines because the fourth relationship has to do with the parents' relationship to their children. And we'll get into some of this. Last week, we said that the ultimate goal of parenting is not compliance. It is character development. What that means is rules without relationship will produce rebellion. <laughs> and there's some of us dealing with rebellious children because all we gave them was compliance. All we gave them was rules, but no relationship, no character development. Because children and people in general don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And what we've given our children is rules without relationship, and it has produced rebellion in them. We're going to get into that in weeks three and four, or maybe four and five. Today, we're going to talk specifically to husbands. And here is the instruction. Husbands, love your wives and do not grow bitter. Do not grow bitter toward them. In fact, if I were to choose a title for today's message, it would simply be when a man loves a woman. That's old school. You got to go all the way back to Percy Sledge. Come on, somebody. Oh, but if you're kind of new school, old school, there's the Michael Bolton cover from, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s or maybe even mid 90s. When a man loves a woman. And that's what we're going to talk about. What it looks like when a man loves a woman. But it can't stop there. Because if we're not deliberate, if we're not decisive, if we're not intentional, we can go, go from loving a woman to becoming bitter toward, and that's toward her. And that's what Paul is saying. Husbands, listen now, pump the brakes. There used to be a time when you allowed culture to inform your response to your wife. But now that you're in Christ, it can no longer be culture driven. It must be Christ informed. And he says, there's no room for bitterness toward your wife because your relationship to your wife, and I'm belaboring the point, because we need to hear it. Your relationship to your wife is God's picture in the earth of his relationship to the church. 
again, it's about so much more than just boy meets girl. Boy and girl have children. We are God's picture to a hurting world of Christ's relationship to the church. Here's the rub, though. Here's the rub. <laughs> Marriages are made in heaven, but they must be maintained on earth. I'll say that again. If it's true that marriages are being made in heaven, it is also true that they must be maintained on earth. I had the privilege of serving with the 101st Airborne Division, and here's one of the things we did. Made no sense to me at the time, but now I can see why. Every Monday, our company went to the motor pool. And for those of you who are veterans, you could probably appreciate this. We went to the motor pool every Monday afternoon, and this is what we did. We did PMCS, PMCS, Preventive Maintenance Checks and Services. And let me say this about where I was stationed. I was stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. We were a rapid deployment installation. That means within 36 hours, listen to me, within 36 hours, we were to, prepared to deploy anywhere in the world. And one of the things that had us uh, uh, at, at uh, uh, this high level of readiness was our weekly PMCS routine and rhythm, meaning every single day, whether we use those vehicles or not, whether we use those Humvees, whether we use those deuce and a halfs, whether we use the five-ton trucks, whether we use those forklifts or not, we perform PMCS, preventive. Notice that word. Preventive means preemptive. It means you're not reactive, you're proactive, meaning you check the vehicle, you check the systems before they break. The same is true for marriage and relationships. Our response to what we do in marriage must be preventive. Marriages are made in heaven. They must be maintained on earth. We, earth, we have to have this regular rhythm, this routine of PMCS. When was the last time you performed PMCS on your relationship, husbands with your wife? Or were you just reactive when something was wrong and when your, the relationship was in crisis? Marriages are made in heaven. They must be maintained on earth. Earth. You, hear, you know why? Because marriage, listen to me, Marriage, and I'm speaking directly to the husbands, wives, this is your week to shout hallelujah. This is your week to shout amen. Come on, somebody. This is your week to get your Madea on. Pastor Wendy got something for y'all next week, though. Come on, somebody. Listen, marriage is more than just the union of two souls. It is the collision of two histories. I'll say that again. Marriage is more than just the seamless, innocent union of two souls. It is the collision of two histories. You say, Pastor Ray, what are you talking about? Every human being comes into the marriage relationship bringing, uh, let me be kind, I was going to say baggage, that's for a whole nother series, but we all come bringing our own unique culture. And for us at Converge Church, culture is made up of four things. The culture you bring to a relationship, the culture you bring into the workplace is made up of four things. Here they are, 
your environment, the environment into which you were born, the environment that nurtured you. Why is environment important? I give you an example. I was born and raised in Liberia, West Africa. Pastor Wendy was born and raised in Ypsilanti, Michigan. That was her environment. But check this out. Your environment will determine what you're exposed to. So my environment in Liberia was totally different from Pastor Wendy's environment in Ypsilanti, Michigan. What she was exposed to uh, growing up in Ypsilanti so much different than what I was exposed to growing up in Liberia. And here's why exposure is important, because your exposure will determine your experiences. So we grew up having very different experiences, good and bad. Huh? But the fourth thing, the fourth thing, our expectations determine and define our expectation of God, of others, and even ourselves. And this is the culture that we bring into every relationship and every situation. Our environments that inform our exposures, our exposures that inform our experiences, our experiences that become our expectations of God, ourselves, and of others. And that's why when we get married, y'all, we come and there is this collision beyond and after the union of these two souls, after the wedding now, after the first dance, after the honeymoon, pretty soon there's gonna be a collision of the two histories. And that's what I call the marinade. Everybody comes with their own marinade. You know what your marinade is? It's whatever you have normalized. And what you have normalized is a direct result of what you have been exposed to, what you have experienced, and has now become your expectation. And this is where the tension begins when the collision happens. Hmm? When your expectation, reasonable or unreasonable, doesn't match your current experience, the result is exasperation. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we are talking about already. Expectation. The collision of two histories. You bring your marinade. She brings her marinade. The way her family did it. The way your family did it. The way your dad did it. The way your mom did it. And you bring all of this. Because for you, that's normal. The way they did it. And the way your parents did it is normal. And now all of a sudden, you have a two marinades that don't go together. The only way we can experience the beauty of God's plan and purpose for marriage is by submitting what culture taught us to what Christ requires of us. Listen to me. You have to submit what culture has taught you to what Christ is now requiring of you. And husbands, it requires you to love your wife without growing bitter toward her. Let me tell you about this great story that's going to help us understand this principle. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 29. And let me just tell you, everything I said up until now was only the introduction. The videographer is off camera laughing. Yeah, come on, somebody. I ain't playing. It was only the introduction. I'm going to get to my message right now. Come on, somebody. 
I am serious. Do y'all see me smiling, Converge Nation? I'm for reals. So here we go, Genesis chapter 29. The story of two wives. The tale of two wives. Come on, somebody. This is the original episode of Sister Wives. <laughs> he said, Pastor Ray, what does that have to do with anything? Everything. Listen, this is that, that we're going to learn what it looks like when a man loves a woman, but also what it looks like when a husband grows bitter toward his wife. We're in Genesis chapter 29. I'll give you the backdrop. Jacob and uh, Esau have had this falling out. They are the twin brothers, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. They were very two, even though they came from the same parents, they were very two different men. The scripture says that Esau was a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, ruddy in complexion, red-headed, and just a straight-up outdoors hunter-gatherer. Now, the scripture says this about Jacob. And it's sort of a contradiction of who Jacob was. And I, I think the church has done Jacob a great disservice because we haven't taken the time to really understand the complexities and the layers of Jacob. Most of us stop at the fact that Jacob's name meant supplanter, that Jacob's name meant deceiver. But when you read Genesis chapter 25 and we are introduced to these two brothers, the scripture says, and the two boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter and his brother Jacob was a mild man. Ooh, he was a mild man. Listen to what it says, dwelling in tents. That word in the Hebrew mild means he was a complete man. In the places where that word is used, it means he was an upright man and a man of character. He said, Pastor, uh, I don't know about that. Didn't he cheat his brother out of his birthright? Are you sure he did? Because we can read the text. And when you read the story of Jacob's exchange with his brother Esau, there was absolutely nothing deceptive about it. Esau comes to his brother Jacob hungry. He said, Jacob, can you give me some of that stew? And his brother says, I can give you the stew, but it's going to cost you your birthright. Is there anything deceptive about that offer? Now, absolutely nothing deceptive. You might say, "Woo, that's an expensive bowl of soup. But notice Esau's response. There was no counter offer. There was no negotiation. Notice Esau's response. What is this birthright to me, seeing that I'm hungry? And Esau says, you got something I want, I got something you want. This is what it's going to cost you. Was there anything deceptive about him offering a price? Absolutely nothing deceptive. Esau accepted. And this is what the scripture says. Thus Jacob deceived his brother Esau. No. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. Jacob put more value on what Esau had than Esau did as the firstborn who had the birthright. There was absolutely nothing deceptive about it. And if you're not careful, listen to me, the lesson in that exchange is don't make long-term decisions based on temporary desperation. In fact, never negotiate from a place of desperation because the person 
with the advantage will always walk away with the upper hand. There is absolutely nothing dishonest. He was crystal clear. It wasn't like he said, oh yeah, you can have the bowl free. And then he said, oh, it's going to cost you. No, he said, this bowl of soup I'm giving you is going to cost you your birthright. There's nothing deceptive about it. Now, maybe he was guilty of predatory lending. Ace Cash Express, come on somebody. But there was nothing deceptive about it. So, well, 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 what about, what about when he covered himself up with, with animal hair? And, well, listen, go back and read the story. None of that was Jacob's idea. You know whose idea it was? It was Rebecca's idea for him to do that. Go back and read the story. Rebecca insisted. And more than once, Esau refused. She insisted. And finally, Esau gave in. Did he have to? No. So he was guilty of being deceptive in that moment. But it speaks of the fact that sometimes people can put a name on you that doesn't even match your character. I'm messing with some of y'all's tradition and theology. Go back and read the text. That's why the scripture says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I despised. Mm. I'm going somewhere. So anyway, send me your emails. Come on, somebody. Send me your emails if you want to talk about the theology that I just discussed, if it goes against your tradition of how you see. But his name was Deceiver. Listen, go back and read the text. I'll give you a third example right here. Right here. Because most of us have twisted what's about to happen and say, oh, now uh, Jacob is reaping what he sowed. Are you sure? Uh, Anyway, let's get into the story. Uh, When a man loves a woman, sister wives, come on somebody. Here it is, uh, Genesis chapter 29. So he's had this falling out with his brothers and he goes on this sojourn to find his mother's people. And he comes to Haran, I believe, and the narrative picks up in verse 1. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. Notice, a large stone, not a small stone, a large stone was on the well's mouth. This is going to make sense in this couple minutes. Now all the flocks would be gathered there And they would roll the stone from the well's mouth. They would roll the stone from the well's mouth. They would water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? So he's new in town. He doesn't know anybody. And he sees these shepherds at the well. It was very strategic that he came to the well being a guest in that town, in that village, Because that's where people gathered uh, during the day. So knowing the traditions and the customs, he came to the well and he found shepherds there and began to inquire of them, where are you from? Because again, he's looking for his mother's family. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. Then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, Man, we know Laban, man. That's a hot dude. We go way back, man. That's a cool cat. Yeah, we really, really like Laban. And verse 6 says, so he said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with her sheep. Then he said, look, 
It is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep when they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Verse 9, now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw, come on somebody, <laughs> listen, love at first sight. When Jacob saw Rachel, come on, dime peace, a perfect 10. When he saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled away the stone. Hold up. This stone that was very large, that the text infers required more than one person to move it. Here comes Jacob, man. He saw he was all bowed up. Y'all know how y'all do, man, when y'all trying to impress that chick, man. He came to the stone and rolled that stone away all by himself. You know why? Because when a man loves a woman, he does some crazy stuff. So, 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 so listen, he rolls away the stone. He rolls away the stone, and he doesn't only roll away the stone. Notice what the scripture says. Uh, where am I? Verse 10. He rolled the stone from the, the well's mouth, and notice what he does next. He watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. He rolls away the stone by himself, and then he serves Rachel. When a man loves a woman, when a man loves a woman, it first of all begins with the pursuit. It begins with the pursuit. Now, you've got to be careful, ladies. I want you to, to, to hear this. And men, you have to be careful as well. Because sometimes we confuse love's pursuit with the thrill of the chase. Men, you are wired to hunt and to kill. And there are things in relationships sometimes when you see that woman that you're attracted to, that woman you have chemistry with, you're instinctively, if that part of you is not surrendered to Christ, all it will be about is the thrill of the pursuit. But love has to go so much deeper. And that's why early on you do crazy stuff that you wouldn't normally do, like you would move this big stone off the mouth of the well and feed all the sheep. Because when a man loves a woman, it is revealed in what is called the law of pursuit. And we'll talk about this some more. When a man loves a woman, listen to me, he doesn't only pursue, but he serves. I wonder how many people are watching right now. You might be married. You might be engaged. You might be in a relationship. And the question becomes, is he still doing what he used to do? Is he still doing all the things he did when he pursued you? Is he still willing to do hard things? sacrificial things and is he still willing to serve because most of these flocks 
were hundredfold. It is safe to assume that the flock she brought as a shepherdess was a flock of a hundred sheep. He doesn't only move the stone, he serves the shepherdess. Notice the second thing. When a man loves a woman, oh, here it is, love pursues. Number two, uh, the scripture says in verse 11, (laughs) come on somebody, then Jacob kissed Rachel. Come on somebody. Listen, brought, brought, listen, he had to shoot his shot. Come on, uh, 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 who's what's his name? Eminem, lose yourself. He said, you only get one shot. Do not miss your chance. Listen, listen, bruh, bruh took his shot, y'all. He had to shoot his shot. And this was his first meeting. And notice what the scripture says. He kissed her. Come on, somebody. And here's the next thing that happened. Now, Jacob was a little extra, y'all. He kissed the girl. <laughs> and notice what verse 11 said. And he wept. He didn't just have a little tear running down his cheek. This guy just started bawling. Ladies, <laughs> I can, you're already saying, whoo, that's weird. But listen to me. Love is passionate. And when I say passionate, be careful. Be careful not to allow someone in your life, ladies. Be careful not to allow a man in your life who is uncomfortable with engaging his emotions fully. Listen, Jacob means, it says he was a mild man. Not only was he willing to move a stone, not only was he willing to serve Rachel, but notice he was willing to go there emotionally. You've heard her share the story about Levi when he was really young, I think maybe two or three years old. And when Levi was upset, he would start to scratch himself. He didn't cry. He just scratched himself. I don't know where that came from. But Wendy, being the amazing child whisperer that she was, somehow let Levi know, Levi, it's okay to cry. And listen to this, Converge Nation. When Levi started to cry as a healthy response to moments of frustration, guess what happened? He stopped scratching himself. He stopped scratching himself. You know why? Because Pastor Wendy taught Levi how to have a healthy emotional response to his frustration. Listen to me. When a man loves a woman, he's passionate. But he's not only passionate in terms of his carnal nature, he is passionate in terms of his willingness to go there emotionally. And there are a lot of men who have grown bitter toward their wives because they haven't processed their emotions in a healthy way. They have stuffed their emotions and it comes out like anger and it comes out as frustration and it comes out as bitterness. And I'm saying this, even though this is a series that we say is for Christian families, I'm talking to the single people out there. Ladies, beware of any man who is unwilling, who is, who is unwilling to be vulnerable, who is unwilling to speak the truth in love. Who is unwilling to say I'm afraid. Who is unwilling to say I'm scared. Who is unwilling to say I don't know. Because love not only pursues, love is passionate. Number three, love prioritizes. 
Love prioritizes. The scripture says that Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban, who had, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were delicate, meaning she had an issue with her eyes. Some believe that her eyes, she had a lazy eye, but there was something about her eyes that weren't necessarily attractive or becoming. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. In form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. Remember, when a man loves a woman, uh, these are indicators that a man loves a woman. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I, this is the one we often refer to as a trickster and a deceiver. He said, look, listen, Laban, I'm going to tell you what I'm willing to do. Because you know what? Love is not only passionate. Love doesn't only pursue, but love will prioritize. I'll say that again. Love will prioritize. So, 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 so he said, I, you ain't asking me to do this, but this is what I am telling you I'm willing to do for Rachel's hand in marriage. I. I'm going to work seven years for her hand in marriage. And he did. And he did. (sighs) On the night of his marriage, Laban, who is the trickster in the story, brought Leah instead of Rachel. And the next morning, Jacob wakes up next to Leah, the woman that he had not chosen. He wakes up to another woman. And Jacob goes back to Laban and says, what have you done? And Laban says, this is our culture. (laughs) Listen, the danger of allowing culture to determine how you do relationships. And I want you to give me some latitude with the text because Jacob comes back and Jacob says, you know, I'm going to work another seven years. This guy y'all say is a deceiver. He didn't throw a fit. Well, maybe he did. He didn't, he didn't hurt Laban. He didn't attack Laban. He said, I'm going to work another seven years. You know why? Because Jacob was a mild man, a man of character, a complete man. Our traditional teachings about Jacob have not been entirely accurate. And so he works another seven years for Rachel's hand. And this is what happens. He marries Rachel, and now he has sister wives. Come on, somebody said Jacob was a Mormon. (laughs) But there's a problem in the story. Because the scripture says, even though Jacob was married to Leah, He didn't love her. His heart was bitter toward Leah. But he loved Rachel. Now while the the story in Genesis is about two very real women, may I submit to you, these two women are symbolic of the experiences we sometimes have with our wives. There's a part of our wives that we love as Jacob loved Rachel. And there's a part of our wives, if we're not careful, we'll despise and grow bitter toward as Jacob was bitter 
toward Leah. And the scripture says in Genesis, uh, what verse are we in? Oh my goodness, help me Lord. Uh, verse 31, Genesis 29 and verse 31. And the scripture says, and when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. <laughs> the woman he loved was barren, and the woman he despised was fruitful. And so Rachel now, Rachel is loved, but unfruitful. Leah is despised, but productive. And Jacob is bitter toward her. May I submit to those wives this morning who feel like Leah. That God can still make you fruitful in the place of your frustration. Just as he did Leah. Men, let me give you three signs that your heart has grown bitter toward your wife. And it's right here from the text. So uh, Leah can have children, and so it says, so Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. The Lord has seen. You know what she was saying? You know how do you, you know when your heart is beginning to grow bitter to your ward, your wife, when she starts to ask the question, do you see me? Leah named their first son Reuben, which means the Lord has seen me. But the question is, Jacob, do, do you see me? And she hoped that because she gave him a firstborn son, now he would see her, acknowledge her, validate her. But his heart had grown bitter toward Leah. Wives, husbands, how do you know that your heart is going bitter toward your spouse? Number two, she had a second son. Remember, Rachel is loved, but she is barren. Uh, but Leah is unloved, but she's fruitful. And she has a second son in verse uh, 33. It says, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. Second sign, you know, husbands, that you are neglecting your wife when she begins to say, do you hear me? And sometimes our wives in their frustration are simply asking to be seen, Reuben, to be heard. So she names the second son Simeon, which means the Lord hears. The Lord hears. Number three, she, she has a third son. Rachel is loved. Leah is despised. But she's fruitful. She's fruitful even in her pain. She's productive. And so she has a third son, and, and, and when she has this third son, she names him Levi, and she says, now, this time, my husband will become attached to me. You know how, you know, wives and husbands, when bitterness has set in, remember the scripture says, the scripture says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and do not be bitter toward them. That's where Jacob was. She said, maybe now he'll become attached to me because I'm doing something for him that Rachel can't. And she named that son Levi to become attached. And even then, he still despised her. And then she has a fourth son. And Leah named the fourth son 
Judah. Wives, if you're living with a husband who has grown bitter towards you, sometimes you have to make a decision that whether he comes around or not, I'm going to praise the Lord. You see, for three, three pregnancies, three times she hoped maybe this is the thing that's going to change Jacob's heart. But nothing about Jacob's heart changed until Leah chose to praise God anyhow in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the rejection. Listen to me, we're going to pick up this conversation next week because there's so much more that I want to get into that I just can't cover right now. But this is what I want to say to you. Let me just read scripture to you. Husbands, if you're in that place where you've grown bitter toward your wives, it's time for you to repent. You married her and you were attracted to the Rachel in her. But maybe it was the Leah in her that turned your heart away from her. Listen to what the scripture says in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore. You say, you come into the altar and praying about all this other stuff. God ain't even, he ain't even studying you. You know why? He's not even attending to your prayers. Here's why. He says, yet you say, for what reason? Why won't you show me this goodwill? And it says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And God said, I see you. I see you snotting on the altar. I see you crying. I see you rolling around on the ground. And God changed my situation. God sent me breakthrough. And the scripture says that the God has despised your offering. You know why? Because you've dealt treacherously with the wife of your youth. Let me, let me give you another one. Let me give you another one as I close. Let me give you another one as I close. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, in fact, let me turn there. I have it in my notes, but let me read it from Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up mid-sentence because God, he first gives this instruction to the wives, and then he gives this instruction to the husbands. And this is where I'll, I'll close. Because husbands, if you've grown bitter toward your wives, you're trading on thin ice. And God is saying, now is the time to look inward, to deal with the hardness of your heart. Because one time it was culturally acceptable to do whatever you wanted to do and put her away. But now that you're in Christ, culture can no longer inform your response to her. Love her sacrificially. Love her selflessly. Love her unconditionally. And don't allow that root of bitterness to settle in your heart. When she says to you, do you see me? When she says to you, do you hear me? When she says to you, will you become attached to me and draw close to me and you remain indifferent? It's because bitterness has set in. And here's the danger from Malachi 2. God, God can't hear your prayers. Uh, Peter confirms it. Peter confirms it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Notice what he says in verse 7. It says, husbands likewise. Dwell with your wives with understanding. Understand when they're hurting. 
Understand when they're in pain. Dwell with them with understanding. Do not ignore what they have to say. When they say, I'm hurting, do you see me? Do you hear me? Will you become attached to me? Dwell with them with understanding. And it says, giving honor. Honor is not just a one-way street. Scripture says, wives, honor your husbands. But notice what it says to the husbands. Husbands, honor your wife as to the weaker vessel. Uh, weaker vessel doesn't mean uh, that there is some kind of defect or deficiency or inadequacy. It simply means as one who is precious, who needs to be handled with care because of how valuable and precious she is. And notice, he says, as being heirs together. She is a joint heir with you. She's not less than she is an equal partner with you in this grace of life. She's not less than. You're not greater than. She is a joint heir with you, an equal partner in this grace called life. Notice what it, how the verse closes, that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, when, when Paul says to you, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and do not be bitter toward them. He wants for some healing to happen. And he's saying what was once permissible and once, what was once allowed is no longer acceptable. It was okay in Colossae before you received this gospel. But for the family that God envisions, there's no room for that root of bitterness. So I close with Ephesians 4 and verse 32, where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, be kind, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus also forgave you. I pray that today would be a day of healing and forgiveness and that husbands, you will lead the way. You would be the one to initiate the conversation and say, baby, I see you. Baby, I hear you. And once again, I want to be attached to you and be the husband that God has called me to be, one who loves you as Christ first loved the church. Let's pray. Father. I pray that today the healing would begin. Seal this word in our hearts and as husbands, I pray God that we would love the Rachel, but Father, we would also love the Leah. That Father, we would celebrate the things we admire, but God, we would make room and make allowance for the imperfections, just as God, you have made allowance for our imperfections. So, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to receive our wives, both the Rachel and the Leah. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Our announcer is coming to tell you how you can receive some resources from us. Uh, again, we thank you so much for connecting with us here online. The series continues next week. Pastor Wendy has an amazing panel of women who are going to deep dive what it looks like to be a Christ-centered wife in a Christ-centered marriage. 
and a Christ-centered home. We love you. We'll see you next week. Our announcer is coming now to help you, uh, to give you some instructions on how you can stay connected with us virtually. God bless you. We'll see you next week. If you were impacted by today's message, we would love to hear from you. Maybe today's sermon was exactly what you needed to hear. Or you prayed the prayer of salvation for the first time. If so, we would love to send you some information to help you kickstart your relationship with God. Or if you want more information on how to join our virtual family, email us at info at weareconverged.com. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can do so online safely and securely at www.weareconverged.com give. You can also text 77977, type in Converge Give and the dollar amount. You can also find all of this information on our mobile app. Simply open your app or Play Store, search Converge Church Plano and download the app. It's that easy. Thank you again for joining us for today's worship experience. We look forward to staying connected with you.